0: A content note before we begin, this episode includes references to bigoted ideas, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Welcome to part three of Schooling Bigotry, a limited series from Western State Center about the roles we can all play in defending democracy and confronting hate within our education system. I'm your co-host, Adrienne VanderValk. A senior fellow with
1: Western State Center. And I am Ray Page, a senior toolkit trainer with Western State Center.
0: Ray, we are in our third and final episode in this series, and we've both been reckoning with these incredibly tough issues in the podcast and in our jobs and our personal lives. How are you holding up? You know what,
1: Adrian? If I can be honest, not great. I've been following anti-democracy efforts for years. But the last 12 months were especially brutal for me as a queer
0: parent and educator. I'm so sorry. And I feel you. It really does feel like the ground is falling out from underneath so many of our communities and our democratic institutions right now.
1: I've been really upset about the coordinated attacks on trans folks, especially trans kids. It feels like the attacks are coming from all sides, banning trans folks from bathrooms, playing sports,
0: and accessing healthcare. And some states have even criminalized their parents and supporters.
1: You know, even when we know how scapegoating works, it's hard not to wonder exactly why some people have drummed up so much political fervor to target maybe the smallest, least powerful group of people in the U.S.,
0: and certainly within our schools. One reason is that politicians have figured out that they can exploit trans visibility for political gain. And by spreading
1: bigoted narratives and false ideas about gender-inclusive practices, they're harming our families, our communities, and our education system.
0: The good news is we are not powerless against anti-trans backlash in schools or against any bigoted or anti-democracy narratives. We can't intervene, even if we're not educators ourselves. We all have a role to play in keeping young people safe and making sure they feel welcome in the spaces they occupy. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the role of parents, families, and community members in speaking out against anti-democracy attacks, reclaiming the narrative, and supporting our young people. In the first part of this episode, we'll discuss
1: how to recognize and influence cultural narratives broadly. Then we'll get into how to engage in the work of supporting our schools at the community level. And finally, we'll talk about intervening in harmful narratives when they show up within our own homes.
0: Something I have to remind myself of is that this harmful culture change we're seeing and its negative effects on schools has been planned and executed by anti-democracy groups for
1: years. If we look at anti-trans legislation as an example, we see a long game that's been carefully mapped out by white Christian nationalists
0: and picked up at the grassroots level. So what's their goal? For one, it is to force institutions, schools, and families to adhere to a specific view of morality, no sex education, open discrimination, erasure, and harassment of LGBTQ plus people, and trans people being removed from public
1: life. Another goal is weaponizing fear in order to gut public institutions
0: like schools and libraries. I recently spoke with our colleague Dennis Chin about this topic. Dennis is the vice president of Narrative Arts and Culture at Race Forward. He had some great insight into how groups have used divide and conquer tactics like moral panics and scapegoating as strategies to privatize public services. Let's listen to part of our interview.
2: So, at Race Forward, when we do narrative change efforts, we start with history in order to understand how our current conditions have been shaped by narratives seeded and deployed for decades by a powerful, wealthy group of people in this country. And when I say current conditions, massive inequality, poverty, homelessness, racial and gender inequities across all indicators of well-being. And so these narratives that have been seeded and deployed, they, they're designed to stoke fear and resentment, to blame our current conditions on, for example, immigrants or trans people, as we're seeing today in the news, or um, lawlessness, right, which is also a racialized story. Those narratives, uh, they have been around for a while, And they are central to the rights culture war strategy. Feminism, reproductive rights, attacking all of that. That progress on these social issues have harmed society. And that you're going to lose out when these quote-unquote minorities or quote-unquote special interests get ahead. It's a divide and conquer strategy. And so they combine those narratives with narratives attacking government. Oh, suddenly... Quote unquote, the government is only serving these special interests. They no longer serve you. The government is against you. They combine those two categories of narratives so that one, a powerful few can get richer. To two, ultimately hollow out government, which should protect and steward the common good. And by hollowing out government, you know, we we think of the privatization and deregulation that happens. And as I like to call it, it's a free market fever tree.
1: I just want to jump in here to put in a plug for a program Race 4 developed to push back against these efforts to privatize and divide our schools and communities. The program is called Heal Together. It is a national movement of students, educators, parents, and school board members who are fighting for an honest, equitable, and fully funded public
0: education. There's an incredible toolkit that supports the Heal Together campaign that anyone can download. We'll link it in our show notes.
2: We launched because of these cultural war attacks, these divide and conquer tactics that were targeted at our public schools. It's like, oh, you're teaching about race. You're being divisive. You're teaching kids to hate white people and hate America. And These are all false narratives. It's a powerful example of how they're combining those two narratives. And they're doing that not just to chill equity work, equity and inclusion work in our public schools and in our government, but they're also using it deliberately as a campaign strategy. Some of the politicians who are seeding and deploying those narratives are actively looking for office. But then also, and what I think often gets not as much attention is, they are looking to privatize public education to make the public school atmosphere so untenable.
0: So we have this cultural backlash against expanded rights, as well as a direct line between promoting bigoted narratives and privatizing public goods. Adrian, what have the educators you work with
1: said about how bigoted narratives are taking hold in their schools?
0: I recently spoke with a group of folks who were trained in the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools toolkit, and everyone in that room agreed that even their more progressive colleagues were expressing concerns about, for example, trans girls playing sports or families of trans kids taking gender-affirming care, quote, too far, too fast. I've heard this too, that even educators who are
1: supportive of their gay and lesbian students are ambivalent about trans issues, or worse, have been convinced by bigoted rhetoric, like false claims that these kids are mentally ill, or being pushed into transitioning by problematic adults. Even those who remain supportive feel that they don't have the right language to counter some of the hateful talking points they're encountering.
0: A phrase that came up a few times in that conversation
1: was moral panic. You mean like the Red Scare in the 1950s or the Satanic Panic in the 80s and 90s?
0: Yes, although with some unique properties, not all moral panics serve the same function, but all moral panics are incredibly effective in spreading unfounded fears. Some context that was helpful to me in understanding this moment is a five-stage model of moral panics outlined by a sociologist named Stanley Cohen, who coined the term. He describes a moral panic as a
1: phenomenon that occurs when a, quote, condition, episode, person, or group of persons emerges to become defined as a threat to societal values and
0: interests. We'll put a link to some information about Cohen and his work in the show notes.
1: Let's use Cohen's model to analyze anti-trans panic. The first stage in the model is to publicly name a particular group as a threat, in this
0: case, transgender and gender diverse folks. And then the second phase is the amplification of this quote-unquote threat message by the mass media. These days, we can point to social media as a form of mass media. Facebook, Instagram,
1: TikTok, and X obviously play a huge role in rapidly spreading messages, for better or worse. For example, memes misusing the word groomer to stoke fear about queer and trans people. But we're also seeing the mainstreaming of anti-trans rhetoric show up in many well-regarded news outlets. Rhetoric that casts doubt on the right of trans people to even exist. Which leads
0: us to the third stage, when fear stoked by mass media triggers the public's anxiety and heightens the panic. This often takes the form of making dire predictions about what will happen if the so-called threat isn't stopped.
1: Like projecting that allowing trans girls to compete in sports would touch off some kind of domino effect that will lead to large numbers of athletes transitioning to gain a
0: competitive edge. Then in step four, we see self-appointed moral leaders, who Cohen calls moral entrepreneurs, attempting to instruct the rest of society about how we should respond to the quote-unquote threat. Think not only pundits, but religious leaders and some politicians. And
1: let's not forget bloggers, influencers and podcasters who are literal entrepreneurs
0: getting rich from spreading these hateful messages. And the more noise they make, the more pressure authorities put on our institutions to solve
1: the perceived social threat. And the final stage in Cohen's moral panic model happens when the quote unquote threat disappears, is submerged or regains visibility. That could mean anything from trans people regaining their rights and continuing to find greater acceptance to trans people's existence being criminalized or worse.
0: It's important to name another key player in step five, the public, who must ultimately decide what to make of all of this and what to believe.
1: And of course, the public is most of us our communities, our colleagues, and our families. How we respond to the moral panic will have a huge effect on whether these laws and policies will create enduring cultural and political
0: change. And even as we're discussing this broader framework, let's not lose sight of the fact that how we respond will have a huge impact on the young people in our homes and communities who are being targeted by these panic narratives. As Dennis reminded us, we have to think not only about the cultural and political costs, but the individual ones as well.
2: When you villainize people, when you cast them as less than human, what does that do to the psyche? To reduce them to single identities and cast them as the enemy, as a threat. I think about people in my family who are trans, who are young and trans, and thinking about what are the type of messages and narratives they're absorbing about themselves in this moment. You know, even if they're fighting back, even if they can see that it's a moral panic that's designed for a political end, there's just something there that I think that we're gonna have to be aware of and accountable to. Like when we actually repair all of the harm that's been that's being done in this moment. I I go to that part because there's this political strategy of a moral panic. And we also just can't forget the personal toll it takes on people and communities.
1: Adrian, you and I both know it's not just educators who are unsure about how to disrupt these narratives.
0: Yeah, when folks are struggling with how to respond to ignorant or bigoted comments, I always recommend turning the conversation toward shared values around what we all want for our kids. We want all students to have equal opportunity to learn and to participate. And for students to learn effectively, they must feel free to be themselves.
1: I agree. Reminding our friends and community members of our core values is always going to be more effective than engaging in ill-informed or bad-faith debates.
0: In our conversation, Dennis shared that to counter a moral panic, we need to advance a generative, affirmative narrative that re-centers our common
1: humanity. And keeping in mind that moral panics are being used to dismantle public goods, we should also reaffirm the value and importance of public education.
0: The Heal Together toolkit I mentioned earlier includes a pledge, which is a great example of how to name and commit to the kind of future we want for our schools and communities. Here's a summary of the commitments the Heal Together pledge asks communities to sign on to. Advocate for honest, accurate, and fully funded public education in my community and across the country.
1: Disrupt harmful and divisive narratives
0: and work to build a just, multiracial,
1: pluralistic democracy. Let's hear more from Dennis about how Heal Together is not only a blueprint for how to respond to anti-democracy attacks, but also a source of inspiration for staying engaged and pushing for the vision of an equitable, multiracial democracy.
2: So think of the stories we tell, the messages we use in our work, and think of those messages and stories like stars. And narratives are like the constellations. They're the arrangement of those stars. And culture is like the galaxy. And so narrative change or narrative strategy, it's the practice of thinking through those stories and messages, aligning them, so they're getting at the same worldviews, the same ideas about the world, narratives in an aligned way so that we're making them popular, accessible, visual, exciting. So when we're talking about narrative change, we're talking about 10-year chunks. How are we fundamentally shifting the way that people in this country think of the world and their place in the world? And how do we do it in a way that clears the pathway towards a just multiracial, pluralistic democracy where all of us, each of us have the freedom to thrive. All you gotta do is look at school districts across the country. There are people that are organized. There are people who are working together across their differences to fight for public schools, to fight for better public schools, public schools that teach the full truth of our history, that are working towards equity and inclusion. Those stories need to be told on a much wider scale. And that's what we're trying to do at Race Forward. Not just tell those stories, but help folks win. And by winning, I mean fighting back against book bans, the censorship of education, and not just fighting back on those things, but advancing proactive, pro-equity public education policies.
1: All right, Adrian. We've taken a look at how schools are bearing the brunt of these disturbing narratives taking hold in our larger society. And Dennis has gotten us thinking about what we can do to stay hopeful and shift the culture around us to resist moral panics and other tools of
0: organized bigotry. Now, let's talk about how parents, caregivers, and community members can take these lessons and use them to intervene with organized bigotry and defend public schools at the local level. So when we talk
1: about organizing, I always return to the question, where do we start? And I recently had a conversation with a parent that helped me gain clarity on this. I spoke with Dechandra loving hurd a parent and organizer in the Tri-Cities region of Washington State. At that time, the community was organizing to recall three school board members who had defied the state's mask mandate during the pandemic. She offered some excellent insight into how parents and stakeholders can get active.
0: Let's hear what DeShondra has to say about her community and how they responded
3: to the school board. Tri-Cities is a very sleepy, conservative community. It was a lot smaller growing up. It's still very small and tight-knit, though. And it's very, very, very right-wing. So whereas Washington State is a blue state, we are red cities. And that's how I like to explain it to people. It's three cities in one. It's Pasco, Kenwick, and Richland. And I have the honor at this point of living in Pasco, born and raised, bulldog. People from here will know what that means. So right now in Richland, in our school boards, there was some school board members that immediately gave us all red flags when they were running for the school board. They were running on anti-CRT platforms and anti-masking platforms and on Republican platforms, which is not normal to run on for a school board. And so three of them got elected and immediately made the illegal decision to take the mask mandate out of the schools. That's probably like was the biggest thing that people were able to stand on and say, we don't want these people in our school board any longer. From there, it just got worse. And so there was a flag ban that they were attempting to put on in Richland School Board as well as an anti-CRT policy, which as we all know at this point, no schools are teaching CRT, but what they're rallying against is just accurate and nuanced history, Indigenous and Black history. What ended up happening is in our Kennewick school district, they were able to actually put somewhat of a CRT ban in their history classes. And so their history right now is limited. A lot of people in our cities watch the news and what's going on in Florida. And they say things like, oh, that could never happen here, which is a problem because, like I said, we are in a red city. We're very, very close to danger is how I've been explaining it. DeShondra's
0: experience really drives home the strategic benefit of supporting schools that are doing culturally responsive pedagogy or diversity, equity, and inclusion work
1: well. Any school or district engaging in this work is taking a risk, and they are definitely hearing from folks who do not support it. So if you want to take action,
3: what do you do? Do whatever's in your capacity. We don't all have to be martyrs for the cause. We don't all have to be in every single facet of organizing, but you find your lane and you stay there and you introduce and invite other people to come organize and support with you. And so maybe it looks like you're just sharing for awareness on Facebook. Maybe it looks like you're just going to the meetings on Zoom. I'm a writer, so I write a lot. I write in word magazine and I'm writing an article for the newspaper. Maybe that's what it looks like. Or maybe it looks like I only have time on Saturdays, so I'm going to show up to the protest and I'm going to hold up recall signs. Maybe it looks small to you in some way, but do what you can because all of those small little steps equal big numbers. And people don't really realize that I don't think all the time. I understand as a parent, you're going to soccer games and football games and tumbling classes. And you think, oh, somebody has to take care of that. But I like to remind people that we are the somebody.
0: I love these examples of how we can take up space and use our voices and spheres of influence. Because if we don't, That's where anti-democracy groups will crowd in and overtake the narrative. Another way to take up space is to write letters to the editor or even host a letter-writing event to show support. Volunteering at a school, if that's something you have the capacity to do, can also make a huge difference. Publicly support your local teachers' union or candidates of all types who support racial and gender justice. It could even look like running for a leadership position yourself. I want to shout out a few organizations that
1: are already doing this work. Red Wine and Blue, Defense of Democracy, and Stop Moms for Liberty are all grassroots organizations made up of people from all walks of life who want to protect local public schools. There are chapters of these groups all over the country. And you can start your own chapter if there isn't already one in your area.
0: We'll link to these groups in the show notes. And even if folks don't have time to attend meetings, you can take up physical space with stickers, buttons, t-shirts that promote your values and show your support for the schools. Art is an incredibly powerful way to spread a message. We can also use yard signs, chalk art, murals, banners, posters to take up physical space too, because educators can't always do that safely. And
1: when the broader community gets involved in organizing, It can change the entire landscape of a town or region.
3: There has been a rise up of teachers in this community that like makes me so proud to be from a family of educators. It's been so inspiring and beautiful to watch. They are everywhere. They are protesting. They are sharing recall signs. I saw a post the other day. They're, They're wearing buttons to school and the school board was getting mad. They were like, no more buttons. Like it was ridiculous, but they're doing everything possible for these students. And As parents, it's like you see that and you're like, we should be going a step farther, don't you think? These are our children. We literally birthed these children. So we have to get up and we have to fight for them and we have to stand for them. And we have to support these teachers, like these teachers that are out there risking everything for these students. And I just think it's a beautiful thing. It's been amazing. In August 2023, the recall
0: effort succeeded. The community of Richland resoundingly voted to recall the three school board members who had illegally defied mask mandates
1: and promoted bigotry. And in the November 2023 election, Richland voters defeated all three school board candidates who were endorsed by Moms for Liberty.
0: That's a huge win and evidence that community organizing works. And I think this is where it's important to remind ourselves and each other that Just because we're hearing a lot of bigoted rhetoric or seeing hate potentially becoming enshrined in state laws, it is not necessarily inevitable that these beliefs or changes will be permanent.
1: One of the outcomes Cohen identified in the final stage of a moral panic is that the panic subsides and the group regains visibility. So let's all remind each other that these moments are part of a long, ongoing series of events and keep the faith that we still have the power to influence
0: how those events unfold. Yes, and I just wanna add one final note about organizing in our communities. If we're organizing as part of a specific campaign, say around an election, we're not always going to win. But when we're intentional and trustworthy and when we organize to take care of each other and show up, we are shaping the culture and we're planting the seeds for future wins.
1: And as we've said before, stay ready. Okay, so we've learned about how families and communities can help influence the big picture through narrative change. And we heard a great example of how to exert influence at the local level. Now let's turn to the kids in our
0: homes and in our lives. We know kids are hearing bigoted narratives, being targeted by bigoted groups, and in some cases, adopting the ideologies and spreading hateful things that they hear. In all cases, they're struggling. And their families are struggling with how to help them. So, again,
1: what can we do? There is actually so much we can do. First, just like we talked about in the episode about schools, we must look out for the most marginalized young people and protect those being targeted as best we can. But when
0: it comes to the kids who are expressing bigoted ideas, things can feel less clear. I had a conversation about this that I think might help. Western State Center collaborates with American University's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, or PERIL for short. And I asked one of our colleagues there, Pasha Dashgard, their director of research, if he could share some simple, concrete ways for family and community members to approach this issue. Let's take a listen.
4: When I think about like how do we interrupt this pipeline, you have to get upstream of it. The hope is that you are equipping your young person in your life with the knowledge and skills to recognize this bad content and recognize these bad ideas before they encounter them or before they truly incorporate these ideas into their broader worldview. Because, you know, a kid who is spending all their time on incel forums and red pill forums, that's that's tough. That's going to be like a lot of work to sort of deprogram that young man or woman, mostly young men. How do you do this? It's in part media literacy. It's in part talking to kids, having this open relationship where you can be like, hey, what are you looking at on your phone? And I think actually in that moment, that's a real it's like a real litmus test. Is your kid comfortable enough to show you what they're looking at or laughing about or not? And being able to have the kind of relationship with your child or with a, a young person in your life where they feel comfortable enough to talk to you honestly about what they're laughing about, what they're joking about with their friends, what they're hearing about online, that's such an important component of building resilience to this kind of radicalization.
1: So much of what Pasha says here resonates with me and echoes what we heard in our schools episode. Just being consistently interested and engaged with the kids in our lives and communities can make a huge difference, even if we don't feel like we're doing anything special.
0: Exactly. But also, let's be real. Being influential with our own kids isn't always easy. If you're parenting or caring for teenagers, your home may feel like a place where you have the least amount of influence.
1: Unfortunately, over the last few years, which included the COVID 19 pandemic and so many resulting changes to family and school life, many of the parents and caregivers we've spoken to have said it's gotten harder to predict or understand what their children are experiencing, especially online.
0: Kids are still on their screens and unsupervised for long periods of time every day. And with the cultural and political landscape changing right in front of our eyes, I know a lot of adults are feeling less equipped than ever to guide their kids and help them interpret what they're seeing and hearing.
1: In particular, we've seen an uptick in conspiracy theories that undermine trust in the government and scapegoat groups of people like feminists, African-Americans, Asians,
0: and Jews. To support families in navigating these challenges, Western State Center partnered with authors Shelly Tachluck, Christine Saxman, and Joanna Schroeder to create a toolkit for parents and caregivers called Confronting Conspiracy Theories and Organized Bigotry at Home. I know this
1: toolkit well. It has an incredibly comprehensive conversation guide at the end.
0: Yes, there's a lot of great background information about how bigoted conspiracy theories gain so much momentum and about the brain science of adolescence. But the piece people always thank us for is that conversation guide, because it's really hard to know what to say when your own child is repeating ideas you know are false and may find horrifying. Part of the
1: conversation guide that I really like are suggestions for how to engage with youth who are sharing quote-unquote edgy, bigoted jokes and memes. For example, you could ask, is this a line that's okay to cross? Or, I'm
0: curious about what that means. Can you explain it to me? Asking questions about things our kids care about is a really great strategy for keeping them talking. We never have
1: to agree with what our kids are saying, but we can always show them that we believe they are more than their
0: hurtful words or actions. Absolutely. And these aren't just useful conversations with kids. They can be helpful with our colleagues and neighbors, too.
1: The best way forward here seems to be expressing curiosity, focusing on values, keeping the lines of communication open, and most of all, making sure to focus on strengthening the relationship between parents or caregivers
0: and their kids. I spoke to a mom named Lisa who had the experience of finding out her daughter was encountering hate online and was able to use Western State Center's materials to change the culture in her home during an incredibly difficult and stressful time. Let's listen.
5: She is a newly minted 17 year old. She is a longtime gamer. She is a YouTube kid. She is a digital artist and a musician. And she's always been a girl who has had boys as her close friends her whole life growing up she's also been someone who's very attracted to humor and sarcasm and so the gaming world has always been kind of like a comfort zone she got invited to a gaming server through a friend and there was a group of probably about 10 core members the kid who owned the server did a live stream on youtube of their gaming it became sort of like the event of the weekend for her to connect with these kids We noticed that she became more involved kind of as each weekend passed with this group of kids. She was sitting in front of her computer for hours, so we became more curious to know who they were.
0: One thing that stood out to Lisa right away was that most of the kids on the gaming server were not local, and the ones who were were not friends from school or people her daughter hung out with in real life. So she and her husband asked to see some of the recordings their daughter was doing on YouTube.
1: There
5: were some off-color jokes and some language that we weren't super happy about. And then we asked to see a few more videos and she got really defensive. And she, she was adamant that she really didn't want us like start poking around into what they were doing, which
0: as any parent knows, this is a huge red flag. At this point, Lisa started to think she should be paying closer attention to what was happening not only on YouTube, but on Discord, which is a chat platform many gamers use. They wanted to respect their daughter's privacy, but she had started breaking screen time rules and was sneaking back onto her computer late at night when she was supposed to be in bed.
5: So we told her, we need to see what you're doing. And my husband read through some of the the chats, and that's when we discovered there's a lot of inappropriate language, memes, images, and content, which she deemed as jokes. So that was kind of how we discovered that that was happening. It kind of devolved from gaming chat to this sort of, I think it was kind of a competition of sorts to post like reactionary memes. And the other kids would be commenting on it and it kind of like escalated and they were all trying to sort of like come up with the funny or, or you know, to get a reaction. Kind of memes. And there were things that we saw about Black people, about Hitler. Some of them were violent in nature. There were pictures of b- bones or guns or references to terrorists and some actively racist and anti Semitic ones too. So it kind of ran the gamut. And it was shocking that these kids were, you know, seemingly not understanding what it was. They thought they were doing it in the context of like joking around but it was really, really upsetting to us as parents to
0: see that. When Lisa and her husband confronted their daughter, she told them they were overreacting, but they continued pointing out specific examples of things they had seen that bothered them and tying that back to their core values as a family and what they had brought her up to stand for.
5: She was sort of like, well, I don't respond to that. I don't. I don't encourage it, you know, and sometimes I'll say, you know, not cool or whatever. But she wasn't really pushing back hard and she certainly wasn't trying to shut it down.
0: What concerned them the most as parents is what we hear from a lot of educators we've spoken to. The jokes seem to be the norm within the group and other members of the chat just accepted it because the community had become so important to them. It was
5: hard. I mean, there's not an easy answer. She's very distraught and this was all tied up in the extra complexity of the pandemic where she was not around other friends and this had become, slowly become, her only social outlet. And her way to have fun and her way to connect and her way to kind of have an identity to me, it seemed out of proportion, the level of distress that this was causing her that we were saying, you may need, need to not do this anymore. It was really extreme. And that was also another kind of red flag that I was like, what is going on here? Like, why has this become so central to her well being, I guess you could say? So I think that's important to note because, you know, I think your kid can be on a chat with friends and have a lot of other things and, and other ways of interacting. And that I think that was part of the problematic nature of this for her was just the context of not having that and this being such a central part of her life. It was just tense with our family. We kept talking about it. She had really stopped interacting with any of her other friends outside this group. So we kept sort of trying to connect with other kids, with with family. We were trying to spend more time as a family. We started instituting family dinners and family meetings so that we could Make sure we were checking in a lot more. Sometimes when you sit down with your kid, they feel like it's just a lecture and they're in trouble. And so we were trying
0: to just create opportunities where we could get her out of her room. Lisa was really clear as she told the story that the events unfolded over a long period of time. There was no easy solution and their home was a very tense place for months. But they continued to ask questions, show how much they valued their daughter, and kept the dialogue going. Eventually, things started to change.
5: We finally convinced her over time that she needed to confront the situation, and there was another girl, and she and this other girl had become friends virtually, but outside of the the context of this group. The two of them decided to sort of like support one another. They talked about it, and she did call a meeting with them and, and talk about it, and the kid who was the instigator of most of this stuff along with the server host were basically not willing to change what they were doing they said that her parents were were being completely ridiculous that we were completely overreacting that she needed to push back and tell us to back off that they were not going to change i think they were like using the word snowflakes and there was definitely some of that going on and that we were ruining her social life and their whole youtube world that she was such a big part of it. And they just really were resistant to her leaving and to changing. I think over time that just sort of the, the group sort of shifted and she did eventually end up leaving with this other girl. But I'd say she stayed in it for a few months after that. I mean, it did not happen overnight. It was really just a lot of continuing continuing to check in and talk with her about it and restrict some of the stuff that she was doing. So that it became, I
0: guess, less fun, quite honestly. When I asked her what recommendations she had, Lisa shared three pieces of wisdom. One, try to see the situation from the young person's perspective and keep the bigger developmental picture in mind. Two, remember that screen time is a privilege and don't be afraid to set and hold reasonable boundaries around that privilege. But the third and most important thing she said is to make sure young people have multiple sources of support including but also beyond you, support that can help them stay oriented to their families, their identities, and their communities.
5: Just keep talking to your kids and questioning, you know, what are you getting from these interactions? What are you getting out of this gaming? What do you like about it? And then making sure, again, that there's that balance between family activities, family time, other friends, other activities, checking into making sure that they're being supported and tied to healthy things in their life. We're talking about online safety. We're talking about screen time. We're talking about hate speech. And we're talking about white nationalist recruiting tactics. All of these different pieces play into it. I do think it's easy to write things off into say kids will be kids or boys will be boys. But I think we have to be more honest with ourselves as parents about what is okay and what is not. And I think, you know, was my child being recruited to white nationalism? Probably not. But this is how it starts. This is how these things take root. And I think we have to be vigilant against what our kids are experiencing online because it's influencing them, especially as teenagers and young adults, in really significant ways.
1: That is an incredible story. What she did is not easy.
0: No, getting adolescents to change their behavior is never easy, which is why the brain science piece of that toolkit is very helpful. There is another excellent resource for caregivers
1: put out by the Southern Poverty Law Center and Peril. It's called Building Resilience and Confronting Risk, a Parents and Caregiver Guide to Online Radicalization.
0: It pairs really well with the Western State Center Toolkit. Here's Pasha again, talking about what he and his team found in their research and their top recommendations for families who want to change the culture in their homes and help young people resist hateful ideas.
4: Once we developed the Parent and Caregiver Guide, we then realized like there's actually a whole other offshoot of trusted adults in the lives of children that we can also engage and empower. And one of the things that came out of that community guide which was developed for grandparents, close family members, but also teachers, mental health professionals, after school coaches, anyone who's in the life of a child. One of the things that we came to was that you might not be the person that that kid trusts the most. And that's sort of a hard thing for for maybe like a parent to hear or maybe a grandparent to hear, but the truth is like all right, you're a 17-year-old boy, you're struggling with dating and relationships, you start paying attention to the manosphere and the red pill and all of that, it might be your football coach that you actually want to open up to and listen to about this stuff. It might be your uncle. It might be your tutor. It might be your after-school arts instructor and not mom and dad.
1: There's a lot to unpack here. I know from personal experience that navigating misinformation and polarization as an individual is stressful. And when we're also trying to support kids who lost big chunks of time socializing and learning in a community, stressful doesn't even begin to describe
0: it. That's part of why I'm really grateful for folks like Dennis, Pasha, and DeShondra who are out here doing the work and making it available to us and to Lisa for being so transparent transparent about a period of time in her family's life that really tested them. I'm also so
1: grateful to everyone who has joined us for this series and has been learning along with us as we dissected what the heck is going on and what we can do to be part of the solution.
0: Yes, I know we've covered a lot in our three episodes. Shall we do a quick recap of what we talked about in each episode?
1: Yes. So in episode one, Blackboard battleground we looked at what defines an anti-democracy group
0: and why these groups are targeting schools. In episode two, Spheres of Influence, we looked at how educators can take action within their existing, well, spheres of influence in their classrooms, with their colleagues, and even at the institutional level.
1: And we also talked about the value of organizing, even if
0: you've never done it before. And today we rounded it out by talking about leading with values and curiosity to help change the cultural narratives in our homes and communities, and how we can become part of melting the snowball of our current moral panic before it does even more damage. (sighs)
1: I'm tired, but you know what? I'm also inspired. Maybe that should be the title of this episode, Tired But Inspired. Thank you all for joining us for Schooling Bigotry. Our show was produced by Western State Center with sound engineering by Square Lightning Communications and Design and Jack Straw Cultural Center. If you have an experience or question you'd like to share with our team, you can send us an email at info at
0: WSCPDX.org. Thank you again for listening.